0: Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American
1: Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists.
0: I would like to start by introducing our next speaker, Dr. Jane Hong. Jane Hong is Associate Professor of History at Occidental College and the author of Opening the Gates to Asia, A Trans-Pacific History of How America Repealed Asian Exclusion. Her current project, under contract with Oxford University Press, uses the history of Asian American evangelicals to explore intersections of race, religion, and politics since the 1970s. Hong serves on the editorial board of the Journal of American History and the executive board of the Immigration and Ethnic History Society, Jane has led K-12 teacher seminars for the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History, consulted for television programs, including Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr., and penned op-eds for The Washington Post and The Los Angeles Times. She also appeared in two episodes of the Peabody Award-winning PBS docu-series Asian Americans. Hong received her Ph.D. in history from Harvard and her B.A. from Yale. The title of Jane Hong's presentation is when and where we enter, reframing how we talk about 1992. Jane, the floor is yours.
1: Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. I wanted to first thank David Chow and David Lattimore and everyone who participated in the planning for this event. I know it took a lot of um, effort and a lot of labor, and so I'm, I'm grateful for this space and for this gathering and for my fellow speakers. I'm looking forward to hearing future folks, and I really enjoyed this last talk by Professor Edmonds. So this is the third talk I've given on the 30th anniversary of the L.A. Uprising. And if I'm honest, it's been the most challenging of the three to write and probably the most challenging talk I've written all year. (laughs) So I'm going to do two things in our brief time together. First, I'm going to offer some historical context to understand what happened in 1992 thinking both of the March 1991 police beating of Rodney King and the March 1991 murder of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins by Sinjadu two weeks later. I'll offer a few thoughts on how historians have explained what happened and the implications of what happened. I think, and this is a historian speaking, right? I think a meaningful conversation about 92 first requires understanding what happened, who some of the people were, and how they all fit or were positioned within broader frameworks of white supremacy and racial capitalism, which form the waters in which all of us operate every day. Um, And whether we like it or not, these are the larger forces we contend with in our daily lives, in our interactions. These are the contexts in which we have these conversations. I'd like to offer some context to help us navigate these forces with greater intentionality and awareness. Second, I thought I would share a little bit about my own journey studying and writing about 1992 as a US historian who is a child of Korean immigrants who opened a store in Brooklyn in 1979 and someone who is now writing a book about race and evangelicalism. This includes attention to how the events of 92 gave rise to the more recent conversations within Christian spaces about what folks call racial reconciliation and racial justice. This might be strange for a historian to say, but I've actually come to see how kind of depersonalized or more abstract historical narratives can actually only get us so far. Um, And I think it's important to then do the labor of locating ourselves and making sense of where we fit, to think explicitly about the relationship between the personal and the structural, the individual and the systemic, and to think about how these big structural pieces play out and refract in our own lives and contexts and those of our communities. Because while it is true that these are big structural histories, it seems to me that the desire of this gathering is to figure out how to live in and with these histories. I'll share a few thoughts from my own experiences and from my own family's history as a way of suggesting what a kind of self-reflective positioning might look like for one person And if I am to be explicit and transparent, one of my hopes is to bring greater understanding of where Koreans are coming into this story, to go beyond a single story as David suggested earlier. And I do this you know, first because I am a scholar of Asian American communities and histories. I write about US immigration. My first book was about the repeal of Asian exclusion. I've studied race my entire career and the ways that policy, foreign policy, all of it has shaped understandings of race. Also because I am the daughter of a Korean immigrant family whose early years and livelihood centered around a small business. And also because, you know, I fear that if I don't tell these kinds of stories that there aren't many people who can or might want to. And this is very challenging territory, but I trust that we're here to have a real conversation and real conversations often require revisiting hard truths and feeling uncomfortable, unsettled. And I would invite us to sit in that discomfort, which is something I don't think folks really do much of these days, the detriment really of our entire public discourse. The first part of what I'm doing, giving historical context, this is par for the course. This is what I do as a historian of race. This is not the uncomfortable part. So I'll explain the structural histories, the policies the practices and the systems of power that created impoverished divested communities like South Los Angeles by 1991. I'll briefly overview how King and Harlan's fit into these larger histories of white supremacy and racial capitalism, primarily using the works of other scholars who have done this work and done it for years. The second part, like I said, the talking about myself and situating kind of my family in these histories is way less comfortable for me. One of the things historians say most often, and I say say this sometimes, um, is you have to know where you come from in order to know where you're going. And I think this is true. I think historians kind of like to give context and then kind of run away to let people draw conclusions for themselves. But I'm gonna try to go a step further to think about kind of what this might look like in my own life. And again, here I'm trying to offer my own thinking about where I fit as a way of modeling how we might locate and position ourselves in this relationship between the structural and the personal, the systemic and the individual. I would like to suggest that this conference is an opportune moment to practice suspending the zero-sum thinking of white supremacy and racial capitalism in our own minds and hearts. And I think this kind of zero-sum thinking, this logic inherently marks race thinking in America. It's the idea that talking about the pain of one group or talking about one group necessarily takes away from another. In place of the zero-sum logic, I would call for the embrace of a more expansive, I don't know if I would use the word theology, but a more expansive mindset of both and that makes space for Asian American voices that take seriously the pain and exploitation as well as the complicity of different peoples and communities in these histories. This is a kind of approach that can hold many different stories and tensions all at the same time. And so I'm gonna reiterate that I'm not asking folks to hear the pain and think about the history of Koreans because I'm trying to take away from the pain of other communities. I would actually just like to ask if there's a way that this conversation didn't have to be framed in terms of either or. That we would try to second guess and silence that part of ourselves that might feel like talking about one group takes away from the pain and experiences of another. Something I often hear people say nowadays, and I see this a lot on social media is, All of these things can be true at the same time. All of these things can be true. I see it in so many tweets nowadays. And I find myself saying it a lot too, because I do think we're not, you know, we're not accustomed to that kind of thinking. We're so used to thinking in terms of either or, zero sum. And in these conversations, we often think about who can we blame? Who is the culprit? And in terms of our own personal kind of negotiations, I think folks oftentimes externalize blame and distance themselves from responsibility. I think that's true for lots of different folks. I can see that in my own life sometimes. I don't think that's honest either. And, and, you know, I think I noticed this and I'll say this because I'm, I'm part of this community. I I even see this in Asian American communities. Even with the the kind of movement API for black lives. There was a lot of discussion about how to talk to immigrant parents about anti-Black racism, but I noticed a lot of second gen, third gen, and other Asian Americans kind of stopped there and didn't really turn the microscope on themselves. I mean, a lot of folks did, but I noticed some folks didn't. And what I would propose is that we all, from our different positionalities, would benefit from turning the microscope on ourselves, maybe even for the first time. Because again, we all come at these stories, these histories from very distinct positionalities that are not just shaped by racial identity, but by racial capitalism. So when we think about 1992, we should go back to the moments that matter to the story. April 29th marked the 30th anniversary of of when the LA uprisings or quote riots um, began in South Los Angeles. I'll use the term uprising. The uprising was a transformative event featuring six days of racial upheaval that destroyed neighborhoods and killed more than 50 people after the acquittal of four Los Angeles police officers caught on video savagely beating Rodney King, a Black man. The original beating of King happened on March 3rd, 1991. Over the year that followed, the trial was moved out of downtown LA to Simi Valley in Ventura County, California, which um, was 2% Black. I've been listening to this uh, Slate podcast called Slow Burn. I think the last season was all about 1992 Los Angeles. I would highly recommend it. And it's in that kind of podcast that I, re- that I learned that this whole process of moving trials um, was actually very rare. One of the lawyers when asked about how often requests like these to move high profile trials from one place to another, how often are these requests granted? His answer was something like one in a thousand. So the the decision was quite remarkable. And so the problem of course was that the jury now deciding whether the LAPD officers were guilty of excessive force against Rodney King, um, were were almost all white. So out of 12 jurors, you had 10 white folks, one Latino American and one Filipino American, no black folks. So in many ways, folks from the get-go were concerned that the LAPD officers were not going to be adjudicated or not going to be assessed by a jury of of Rodney King's peers. So there are a lot of questions about the justice of this case. When the not guilty verdict came down, that's what ignited the six days of uprisings in South LA and through neighboring areas of LA, including Koreatown. And I think folks who don't come from Los Angeles, there's a way in which you probably don't know a lot of geography. I learned a lot of this after living here and also after studying this event. So the violence spread from South LA into adjoining neighborhoods that included Koreatown. After April 29th, there was high igu Over the next six days, between 40 to 50% of the businesses damaged or destroyed were Korean owned or run, about 2,300 of them. And I think uh, David outlined some of the losses earlier. This large number was in part because there were just so many Korean-owned businesses in these neighborhoods. And so that speaks to a lot of the structural um, histories, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But it was also deliberate targeting. For example, stores with signs identifying them as black or Latino-owned businesses. These were often spared. And the targeting was in part because of another event that happened in March, 91, as I mentioned, the murder of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins by Sinja a Korean storekeeper, 13 days after Rodney King's encounter with the LAPD. And indeed, Empire Liquors, which was the store where this happened, was among the 2300 um, Korean businesses that were burned or significantly destroyed. I'll say a little bit about the, about the Harlins case because i realize realized that a lot of folks who don't study these events actually probably don't know um, a lot of what happened. So briefly, on March 16th, 1991, Harlins, a 15-year-old black girl from South LA walked into Empire Liquor at Market in Delhi And as David outlined earlier, she grabbed a bottle of orange juice that cost $1.79. She put it in her backpack with the carton sticking out on top. Sinjadu was the um, Korean merchant um, or storekeeper at the counter, this is a Saturday morning. She accused Harlins of stealing the orange juice. Latasha had $2 in her hand, but there's questions about whether um, Sinjadu saw the $2 or not. She grabbed Du, grabbed Latasha's La- sweater. Latasha punched Du in the face and headed for the door while she left the carton of orange juice behind. Du picked up a handgun and fired a shot into the back of Latasha's head from across the store. The Police later confirmed that there was no attempt at shoplifting, and in fact, Latasha had two dollars in her hand. During the trial that ensued over 1991, Sinja Du testified on her own behalf. Her defense team made a case that the shooting was an act of self-defense because Dew believed her life was in danger. Her defense team emphasized statistics about how many Korean storekeepers had been killed in Los Angeles in the years previous. In many cases by African-Americans during a robbery in progress, they talked about just the number of robberies. And so again, Dew claimed to have acted in self-defense. Her testimony was contradicted by the statements of witnesses at the time as well as the store security camera video, which again, as many folks saw then, and you can see the video now, which showed shooting Harlan's in the back of the head from a distance as as Harlan's was actually leaving the store. And the thing that folks who lived here during that time know is that in the lead up to and coverage of the Rodney King shooting and then the entire trial that played out over the following year, these two videos on the first, on the one hand of Rodney King being beaten and on the other hand of Latasha Harlins being killed, these two videos played in a loop that when local media outlets talked about one case, they often talked about the other. And so these videos in many people's minds were lumped together And these cases were very much connected in the minds of many people in part because of how media depicted the events, but also for folks in South Los Angeles, they connected um, these events very closely. So the jury in the Sinjadu case, they actually did find her guilty and they they sentenced her for up to 16 years for manslaughter. But the judge in the case, and this is the part that I think most folks don't know much about, that historians have done work to think about. It's the judge in the case, Judge Joyce Carlin, who used her discretion to suspend that sentence. So instead of jail time, she gives due five years of probation, 10 years of suspended prison sentence, 400 hours of community service and a $500 fine, plus funeral costs for Latasha Harlins. And a state appeals court later upholds this ruling about a week before the LA um, uprisings began. So, probably the definitive history of this case that historians use is a book by Brenda Stevenson called The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins, published in 2013. And in the book, Stevenson interrogates the case, the trial, what happened. And the book is really, I think, notable because she gives central attention to the three women whose lives intersected in this case. So Latasha Harlins, Sinjadu, and Joyce Carlin. She traces their backstories, presenting a rich study of how their lives and their families' lives fit within larger histories um, of this period. So Stevenson, who is a historian of women in the Atlantic slave trade, she traces Harlan's family line back to enslaved communities in Mississippi and Alabama. She describes what life was like for them and then charts their pilgrimage West, first to St. Louis and then to South Los Angeles during the 1980s, which historians who write about this period in the 80s, this is a period of incredible instability and upheaval in cities across America. This is the period of the crack epidemic, its deindustrialization's ongoing, high unemployment, This is also the period of the Reagan administration, when public divestment from housing and social services from the poor creates skyrocketing problems, skyrocketing homelessness. And just just to give you a sense, the Reagan administration cuts the budget of HUD, Housing and Urban Development, by 90 percent by the mid-1980s. So this is really... um, a period of much difficulty for um, cities like Los Angeles. And there's been lots of historical work about the impact of this state divestment. So Crystal Harlan's Latasha's mother, she is killed by gunfire in 1985. She is shot by um, her ex-husband's girlfriend. The murderer is charged with voluntary manslaughter and she's sentenced to five years. But that experience um, really shocks the Harlan's family her grandmother's involved and does testify in the, the trial. And they see it as a huge injustice because they really thought that the case should have been pursued as first degree murder or something more harsh. And so Latasha, I think this is something talked about in that Netflix film that was just talked about, that I would also recommend a love song for Latasha. One of her dreams is, you know, she's studying hard and she has a dream of going to USC to become a lawyer so that she could prevent injustices like the one she had just seen in her mother's murder case. So her mother's murder, and and Stevenson talks a lot about this in the book as well, um, her mother's murder is incredibly formative to the way she thinks about the world. And it's something she doesn't really recover from, even though she's only nine. She's She's a young person when it happens after her mother's death, Latasha is raised by her grandmother, Ruth Harlands, um, who works as a clerk with the County Department of Public Social Services, along with her cousins. Um, some of her cousins are profiled in that film and Stevenson talks at length about their lives. She also devotes a chapter, Stevenson does, to Sinjadu. And I think this part is one that not a lot of folks talk about. And so this part, I think for many people who read it is something very new or different. So Stevenson talks about Sunjadu. She starts with her life in Korea. She's born outside of Seoul. And she actually has a pretty comfortable life growing up. And then even after getting married to Billy, her husband, she's a housewife. Her husband runs his family business. He teaches taekwondo. And they do pretty well. So they live a pretty comfortable life. They have two kids. But then her husband decides to move them to the U.S. in 1976 because he wants to He doesn't want his kids to go through Korea's very harsh educational system. I don't think folks know much about that system, but um, very hierarchical, very difficult. If you don't do well on certain exams, you won't get into a quote good college and that kind of dooms you for life. I mean, it's a very, very um, difficult environment. And so they don't want their kids to go through it or Billy doesn't want his kids to go through it. So they come to the US, um, they buy their first store in 1981. Their first store is actually in a white middle-class neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley. So when they buy Empire Liquors in 1989, they actually have very little experience with running a business in a low-income neighborhood. And also they have very little experience dealing with uh, black and brown customers. And so things start off badly uh, from very early. They develop a, a kind of poor reputation with local residents. Interestingly, uh, Billy Doo does hire uh, some black folks from the neighborhood in response to some of the, the resistance and um, because folks are pressuring him to do so. He actually hires Latasha's uncle. So Latasha's uncle actually works for the Dues for a short period of time. That does not end well as well. So I think, you know, just to kind of give a little bit of background here, 1990, a year before what happens with um, Sinja and Latasha Harlan's a drive-by shooting happens outside the store. Some witnesses run for cover inside the store, and Mr. Dew makes them leave because he doesn't want to get involved um, in what's happening. One of the black men um, that he forces out was later shot and killed. So there was a lot of anger and bitterness about that. The dudes also come into conflict with the local gang, the Main Street Crips. So r- shortly before the Harlan shooting, they had actually closed the store for two weeks um, after local Crips threatened to harm their oldest son, who had agreed to testify in court against two gang members accused of that they accused of stealing from the store. So there were threats against their family and it got so bad that the dudes actually tried to sell the store, which sat on the market for months and they weren't able, Billy um, didn't sell it because he wasn't able to get the price he wanted. And so this was the context in which Sinjadu encountered Latasha Harlins in March, 1991. Stevenson, I mean, you know, this, this work is, this book is, I think, really important because it gives so much context. Another thing that Stevenson talks about is just, uh, Sinjadu had kind of, a history of depression. She had been hospitalized for falling into a comatose state. She had also experienced domestic violence. The police, for example, had to stop her husband from slapping her when they arrived on the scene after Latasha was shot. So there is just a lot to the story that books like this are able to show. And another chapter looks at Joyce Carlin, who was a new judge. She was just 40, which is quite young for a judge to be a superior court judge. This was her first big case. It was her first big profile case. She was wealthy. Her father was a Warner Brothers executive. Her husband was a well-connected law partner with a lot of political connections, which in part probably helped her to get the judgeship. Stevenson traces Carlin's Jewish ancestors back to Russia. She talks about how they migrated at the end of the 20th century. They first moved to Boston, then to Los Angeles where her father was able to rise the ranks. So, I mean, this book is, you know, it's, it's an attempt to center women in histories that are often gendered as very masculine, histories that often marginalize and erase women. And indeed, that's a lot of why Stevenson claimed to write this book. She's argued that the broader erasure of women, or the, the broader erasure of Latasha Harlan's from Public Narratives 92, she argues, is part of the broader erasure of women and especially black women from histories of racial violence. And she is really interested in thinking about how racism, patriarchy, right? How these things intersect. Stevenson also wants to remind readers that racist violence is not the exclusive province of men. You often have these highly gendered narratives like that of Rodney King being beaten by four um, LAPD men. But she, Stevenson talks about the violence that women can do to women and not simply that of Sinjadu shooting and killing Latasha Harlins, but also the violence of Judge George Carlin who used her discretion and power as a judge to suspend due sentence against the advice of some and the protest of many. When scholars of Asian America write about 92, they often go in certain directions, similar directions. Typically, you know, and I'm generalizing greatly here, they're very critical of how mainstream media sensationalizes black Korean conflict in ways that obscure white racism Early on, you have Korean American scholars in the 90s, like Elaine Kim and Edward Chang. They used their work to humanize the stories of Korean storekeepers and community members because they believed these were the stories that mainstream media and power holders had generally ignored and silenced. They also foregrounded larger and longer solidarity efforts between the two communities. Um, the Black Korean Alliance gets talked about in book after book, it's one prominent example. Edward Cheng, who's a historian at uh, UC Riverside, was himself a member of the Black Green Alliance. I think that's part of why uh, he talks about it so much. That group dissolves. So it's, it started in 1986 with help, actually, from um, L.A. County. And it dissolves in November 1992, um, as you can see here, right? Because members are uh, attacked as traitors by people within their own communities. It's a very difficult uh, project that they're embarking on. And when I think about other books that come out in the late 90s, early 2000s, they explore the implications of 92 for Korean American politics and community life. So Blue Dreams, I think David mentioned earlier, you know, this actually looks at diversity kind of and division among Korean immigrants. So they take pains to show that not all Korean immigrants are storekeepers, not all Korean storekeepers are successful. You have different kinds, different, you have tensions between kind of professionals and business owners within the Korean community. You even have tensions between swap meat owners and liquor store owners. Um, And also you have an entire class of Koreans who work for these store owners who are not themselves entrepreneurs. And so their experience in 92 is different from storekeepers in lots of different ways. And so there are a lot of class distinctions even within the Korean community. Later, you have, you know, other kind of second generation Korean American scholars and other scholars. You have folks thinking about why violence erupts to the extent that it does in Los Angeles and not in places like New York City. This is literature I'm just reading more about now. And so thinking about kind of the political structures of LA that created this um, explosion, whereas in places like New York City where you did have boycotts, um, you had black boycotts of Korean owned businesses in Flatbush, um, Brooklyn in 1990, the Big Apple boycotts. Um, The black folks who boycotted were Haitian. So you have a a large West Indian and black Caribbean population in Brooklyn, which is somewhat different um, from the black communities in Los Angeles. But the question that some political scientists have asked is why didn't you have the same kinds of uh, violence erupt there? And so again, a lot of those political scientists talk about local kind of political structures of city government that helped diffuse some of those tensions in New York and the kind of different role that the media played in places like New York City. And you can read that for yourself and kind of assess the arguments for yourself. I think in part what some of these Korean American scholars are trying to do is to make legible images like these. Um, I've seen these circulate more recently on Twitter. It's hashtag rooftop Koreans. Um, I mean, I I don't, I think what a lot of scholars do, they try to explain like why Koreans did this um, in 92, folks who felt abandoned by law enforcement and kind of the ways in which it led them to these kinds of situations. More recently, these images have been taken up by right-wing folks who have been trying to use it in these ways, uh, bring back rooftop Koreans. So, I mean, I find these very distressing. Some of the images that really get lost in the mainstream media coverage of 92 is kind of, you do have moments of solidarity. And I think have talked about some of these and I think you know. I think we're going to talk about some of these moments throughout our gathering. The media doesn't really report as much on these moments. You do have some um, reports. This image is from May 2nd, 1992. This is a spontaneous, massive demonstration in Koreatown that, by one estimate, brought together about 30,000 uh, people, including many Korean Americans of different ages and backgrounds. One scholar called it the largest and most quickly organized mass mobilization in Asian American history. And what's interesting about the conversation at this demonstration is that folks involved, Korean folks, a lot of the speakers didn't blame the, quote, looters for the destruction of their stores, but you know many actually called out American institutions like the media, LA Times, the police, and the government for inciting tensions, reinforcing inequalities, and directly instigating urban violence. Angie Chung in her book, Legacies of Struggle, talks at length about some of these moments. And so you do see some of these moments. And again, the goal of many of these scholars was to think about grounds for solidarity. And images like these help make me think like, how do we talk about loss in ways that are dignifying to all? Ways that would never dream of equating human life with property, which but which are capacious enough to hold all of these losses and tragedies with generosity and grace. Latasha Harlan should not have been killed. Sunjaja should have gone to jail. And here I'm not advocating for carceral strategies only. But in the moment of 1991, among the options available at the time, the, the choices were Sinjadu goes to jail or doesn't. And I think um, many folks argued at the time and now that she should have gone to jail. It grieves me that Rodney King and Latasha Harlins were denied justice by the American legal system. It grieves me that Black and Latinx communities were disenfranchised and brutalized to the point that many believe these kinds of actions represented one of the only forms of rebellion or protest that they could muster. It grieves me that Korean businesses were targeted for destruction and all the ramifications for families and whole communities. It grieves me that whole neighborhoods of South Los Angeles and Koreatown were destroyed. And it really grieves me too that Korean store owners were depicted um, in media as heartless gun toting thugs. And now that they're being used and reappropriated by right wing folks in, in our current moment. So all of these things can be true at the same time, right? This is the, the mindset I suggested earlier of both and versus a zero sum either or. So all of these things can be true at the same time. And I would like to practice holding all these things in tension, even if it's uncomfortable and goes against the zero sum way, we've been socialized to talk about racism and inequality in America. So I only have a few minutes left. And so what I'll do is just very briefly talk about my own family's experience. And here I'm drawing, I would like to draw on the work of my colleague, Jonathan Tran, whose work I've been, whose book I've been reading and learning a lot from. And racial capitalism, there's so much in that term. Historians use it in many different ways. It's like the word liberalism. It's like my hate, my my brain wants to explode. But I think what we can take away from the ideas of racial capitalism is that we need a way of talking about Black-Korean and Black-Asian relationships or any racial kind of relationships in ways that go beyond simple racial hierarchies. We need ways that can take seriously the fact that racism and capitalism are mutually entangled, that you can't understand racism without understanding the material and economic realities attached to racialization. That it's not just about race, but it's about the economic realities attached to them who gets access to capital, who can get loans, who can get jobs, how much are people paid? So it's access to resources. And understanding how racism and capitalism are connected, I would argue means that you have a framework of understanding that can account for internal class dynamics, complexities that don't just tell a single story. And so when I think about that, in my own family's life. So reflecting on my own parents' experience opening a store in New York City, these frameworks have helped me understand some of the nuances of how my family story fits into these bigger structural histories and contexts. They've also given me a direct line into understanding some of the pain and the feelings of betrayal many first-generation Korean immigrants felt, and in some cases still feel when they think about 1992. Thinking about my uncles and aunts who still um, run this store today has helped me connect the struggles of Korean immigrants and the powerlessness and despair many felt. Not as a way of excusing or justifying their own acts of oppressing others, but as an act of empathy and humanity to try to understand them and their positionality. And I think part of the reason this is important is that many conversations about 92 and I think just about race today don't leave a lot of space um, for the recognition of the different positionalities um, and the pain experienced by Asian Americans and in the case of 92 by Korean Americans, whatever generation they may be. And I think the inability of these Korean communities to even feel heard in conversations, I think those feelings have really impeded healing for years and continue to stunt the ability of many folks to move forward. As I suggested earlier, part of the significance of this gathering, I would argue, is that it gives space and permission for Asian Americans to express their pain as a way for all of us to come together, be on the same page, to create kind of an expansive way of holding all of our communities' different positionalities, and to then talk about moving together, moving forward together. My family story also helps illustrate for me how racial capitalism works in terms of positioning people distinctly in a racialized economic system where you don't just have winners and losers, but you have varying degrees of complicity in the exploitation and oppression that is actually part and parcel of capitalist societies. So, you know, these, these family photos, my mom immigrated to the US with my father. She, she, my mom was a nurse. That's how my father gained entry under the 65 Immigration Act. My mom didn't really wanna come to the US. My dad was set on it. When they arrived, I worked in canning factories in New York City. My mom worked in a sweatshop for a few years to raise capital because my mom wanted to study for her nursing license um, in the US, but she would need time because her English wasn't good enough and she would need to take time off to study. My father was dead set in opening a business because he saw it as one of the only pathways to financial stability. So he forbade her from pursuing her nursing license and instead they raised capital. They worked for several years and saved enough to put money down payment on a store. And that story by itself is just really interesting to consider how that was possible. During that time, my mom gave birth to my sister and sent her to family members for months because my mom was working so many hours, she could not actually raise her for that period. In 1979, my father found Plymouth Deli in Brooklyn Heights, a Jewish owner who had run it for many years was retiring. This is it today, I couldn't find an old photo. My parents worked 16 to 18 hour days, seven days a week. Back then in 79, in the 80s, it was a greengrocer, a small grocery. The following year after they bought the store, I was born and they bought a house in New Jersey with good school districts where my sister and I went to preschool and early elementary school. Meanwhile, my brother was born. My parents' marriage struggled and ended in divorce. And my father, who like many Koreans in that period had hepatitis contracted through the water supply of a still industrializing Korean nation then developed liver cancer due in part to the stresses of running the store. His cancer wasn't diagnosed until it was too late. He died one month later. At that point, the store passed to my uncle and grandfather and my mother was cut off. And were in for governmental assistance, I have no idea how she could have raised my sister, brother and me on her own. The store in Brooklyn Heights remains in my dad's side of the family. So at various points, the store has sustained up to three families of uncles, aunts and cousins along with my grandparents until their deaths. Over the years, the, the neighborhood has changed dramatically. It's a five minute walk from the Brooklyn Promenade and less than 10 minutes from Brooklyn Bridge Park next to Grimaldis and Shake Shack. And it's now a deli that runs with limited hours. I think it closes at 5.30 PM now. I don't know how well it's fair during the pandemic because no one will tell me. Um, and I haven't visited since before the pandemic, but I do plan to go back next month. In closing, I don't actually know how to summarize the store's significance to my parents' story and to the livelihoods of my entire extended family on my father's side since the 1980s. I don't know how to summarize all of that, and I also realize that in focusing on these on the store, you know, there are all kinds of critiques about what the store represents because it does represent differential access. It represents uh, the legacies and I guess what Professor Don Contran would call the aftermarkets of racial capitalism. And so these are things that I think about as a scholar, but I also think that these are things we can think about just as people to think about where our personal stories and our family stories fit into these bigger structural stories. I think that is the next step for many of us in thinking about where we, where we sit, where we fit in these histories of white supremacy, racial capitalism, and where they bring us to today. And so My very last thing is, you know, I would like to just say that's something I'm trying to practice in my own life and that I would really encourage and want folks to practice in their own life as well. It's how do you practice that kind of expansive mindset of both and that can hold the losses and the pain of multiple communities in tension that can pause before jumping to categorize and create hierarchies, right? Because hierarchies, racial hierarchies, these are all kind of fundamental They're inherent to capitalism. They're inherent to racial hierarchy, to to, to white supremacy. It's trying to rank people. But how can we practice a more expansive mindset that suspends that kind of categorization and that could just hold um, many collective losses and pain and tension? And how do we do that at the same time that we do recognize and kind of events as they happen? And I would like to think that's possible now in a way that it wasn't in 92 or its aftermath because of 30 years later, there is maybe perhaps greater space and room for these conversations. And so I'm grateful for this gathering, for this conversation, where I hope we can dream together about how to move forward. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at
0: ltiaa.com.